Good morning. Beth and I were part of the Alpha team this last round, and afterwards I just told Drew we're just going to sign up forever. So it was, it was awesome. We had our Christmas party uh, this past Thursday night, man, and it's just amazing. Just like almost everybody showed up. It was incredible. I'm like, wow. You know, they, these people just get to know each other and love each other, and it's, it's really, really a great experience. So amen to everything that she just said, and we do hope that you will join us. All right, well, it is the Advent season, as you are well aware, and week by week, we've been talking a little bit about what Advent is, and as Ryan said earlier in the service, Advent is a season of longing. So it's a season of time in which Christians all over the world, for most of the last 2,000 years, have done what? They've gotten very thoughtful, very intentional, very careful about dealing with and connecting with whatever it is at the deepest level of their hearts and souls they are longing for right now. What are you longing for? What are you looking for? What are you searching for? What are you hungry for? What are you thirsty for? Whatever it is, Advent ends in Christmas, which is the day of the year, year after year, where God steps forward and says, yeah, I got that. I know all about that. I've made provision for that. And here he is. His name is Jesus. And week after week here at Rio during this Advent season, we've been going back into the Old Testament, back to the book of Isaiah, where 730 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah starts telling us about the one who would come. So two weeks ago in Isaiah 7, 14, he said, hey, by the way, the one who's coming, he's going to be born of a virgin. That's unusual. It's different. And it gives rise to the name that Isaiah gave him there, which is what? Emmanuel. And what does Emmanuel mean? God way out there somewhere who's left us all to deal with our longings and figure out how to satisfy our souls? No. It means God with us. Who is Jesus Christ? He is the invisible, intangible God who through the instrument, if you will, of the womb of a real girl named Mary, by the power of the Holy Spirit, took upon himself a body like mine and yours and on Christmas was born as one of us. He came to us. And more than that, as we talked about, he came for us. He came to save us, to rescue us. The word I would use is he came to claim us, to take us for his own. And then last week we got together and went, you know, let's take a look at the way he came because the way he came is, well, he came in such a way as to make you want to be claimed if you really think about it. You know, instead of splitting the skies and pouring out the heavenly forces, which he easily could have done, that would have been the simple route. We all would have just fell in fear before him. Oh, Lord, we're so terrified. You know, whatever you want, just take it. It's overwhelming. We're ants before you. You know, don't step on us. Instead of that, what does he do? He manifests a far greater power. He manifests the strength of weakness and the power of vulnerability and the might of humility He comes to us as a baby. Why? Because his goal is what? It's not to get us to bow before him in subservience and obeisance out of terror. It's to do something far more difficult. It's to get us to come forward on our own and and bow before him because we want to. Willing surrender, joyful obedience and worship. His goal is not to convert you from an enemy to a slave. His goal is to convert you from an enemy to a son or to a daughter. He's making you his friend. So he's born as a king, an infant king. And as we continue now in what Isaiah tells us about him, Isaiah's like, yeah, 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 the baby, he grows up, he's a king. And he's going to do three things today, three pictures. He's going to show us a picture of King Jesus. He's going to show us a picture of the kind of reign that King Jesus will bring. And he's going to show us a kind of a picture of the peace that he alone brings. It's like he looks forward in time and says, let me tell you how this story ends. Safety, security, 
peace for God's people, in fact, for everyone. It's remarkable. And so here's what I want to do, and I'm telling you in advance because I want you to be thinking about it, okay? I want to end this whole message with a question. We're going to look at the three pictures, the king, the reign, the peace, and then I'm going to get to the end and say, okay, so what should my response to King Jesus be? What is it? Because it calls for a response. So we pick up our study today in Isaiah 11, beginning at verse 1, where Isaiah says this. He's speaking of Jesus. He says, there shall come forth a shoot from the what? From the cut down, burnt stump of the family tree of Jesse. I'm going to stop there for a minute because some of you are going, I don't see cut down and burnt in there. And who the heck is Jesse? Jesse is the father of King David. King David is the second king of Israel. He was a great and amazing guy, wrote most of the Psalms, and he is a man that that God himself came to and made a promise. He said, look, I'm going to bring Jesus, the king of all kings, forth from the lineage, from the genealogy of you, King David. But what has happened to his lineage and genealogy? They have fallen off a cliff. Spiritually speaking, this line of kings is awful. God comes with this emblem of judgment, this cut-down, burnt stump. Isaiah's like, let me tell you what the lineage of David has come to. They're a cut down, burnt stump. And that's something ancient people would have understood because in the ancient world, okay, if you were a king and you were going to go up against your enemies and you conquered your enemies militarily after you, you know, rape, pillage, and plunder and do all these evil, awful things, you then want to leave them utterly devastated. So they would typically stop up the wells to make it difficult for the people they leave behind to get water. They would steal all their food and crops, so now they're going to starve. And then they looked around and said, now what else can they eat in this land? You know what? The fruit of the trees. Cut them down, burn the stumps. So that nothing good ever comes from them again. Isaiah's like, David, I'm going to tell you something about your house. You're not going to like this. Here's what it's become. Between the generation of David and the generation of Jesus, it has become a dead, burnt stump. But God has made a promise. So what's going to happen? Because it's utterly unexpected. Life is going to come from death. Fruit is going to come from a dead, burnt stump. He says, there shall come forth from a living shoot, from the dead, burnt stump of the family tree of Jesse. And and more than that, a branch from his roots, meaning the exposed roots, you know, also burnt, by the way, around the stump. Okay, from that, a branch shall come, and it shall bear fruit. And fruit is something that gives life to other people. It's remarkable. All right, here's the deal. We're moving toward a question. What's the question? It's for each one of us. Hey, what should my response to King Jesus be? I'm trying to get you ready for the answer. I mean, if you're looking for answers, I mean, this is a, this is a possibility here. I think you can take a look at this and go, you know, here's the thing. If as a result of my sin, if as a result of my taking my life and saying, I'm going to do what I want with it, if as a result of somebody else's sin, as a result of them saying, I'm taking my life and I'm going to do whatever I want from it, if as a result of the sin of the world, and it is a broken place that we live in, like collectively as humanity, we've said to God, thank you, not really, we're taking our lives, we're going to go do whatever we want with it. Or if as a result of some combination of the three, you look at your life right now and you go, you know what, if I'm going to be honest about this, it's a burnt dead stump. I'm not expecting anything living, much less life-giving to come from this. If that's where you're at, I think the response is to take that life and to bring it to God. It's to bring it to the one who alone can bring life out of death. He alone can bring something alive and life-giving out of dead burnt stumps. 
He's describing Jesus. He says, listen, he's the one who brings life out of death. He's the one who brings life-giving fruit out of that which nobody expects anything from. And notice how God accomplishes this through Christ. It's the Spirit of the Lord. He says in verse 2, and the Spirit of the Lord shall what? Shall rest upon Jesus. That's different language from what you find elsewhere in the Bible. So you're reading through the Bible and the Spirit of the Lord comes upon this person and then they do something amazing. And then he comes upon this person and they do something amazing. And again and again, he comes upon people for certain tasks, for certain moments in time. They do amazing things and then it's like he leaves. Not here. He rests upon the idea of being permanently upon Jesus. And now he begins to describe the Spirit of God who rests upon Jesus. And and what does he say? He says that the Spirit of God is the Spirit of wisdom. He gives you the ability to accurately perceive things. He's the Spirit of understanding. He gives you the ability to take that accurate perception and then make good decisions based on it. And then don't miss this. He says that he is the Spirit of counsel and of might. And I, I love that because it repeats what he said last week. Back in chapter 9, verse 6, he's like, yeah, I'm giving Jesus names. In chapter 7, I gave him the name Emmanuel. We got that one already. But his name shall also be called Wonderful Counselor. And then immediately he says, Mighty God. What are we looking at? Counsel and might. Counsel and might. Counsel and might. And maybe that sounds good to you. You know, you're thinking, I don't know, after the last couple of years, I could use some counseling and maybe it'd be free, you know, because of Jesus. And I'm guessing with his wisdom and understanding, he'd be the most amazing counselor in, in he is. I'm a big fan of counseling, for the record. Part of your generosity to this church makes it possible for people to see counselors all the time. We have a wellness page on our website with a list of counselors. But that's not at all what he's talking about here. When he talks about the counsel of the Lord, and for that matter, about his mind, and he calls him a wonderful counselor back in chapter 9, he's referring to a military strategist. He's realizing, hey, listen, God is in a battle, okay, for our hearts and for our minds and for our lives and for our families and and for our city and for this world. And Isaiah, by the power of the Spirit of the Lord, sees the battle plan of God, and he realizes that, man, it is so different from anything any mere human being would create that it and it alone is guaranteed to succeed. All our plans are some iteration of the same thing. I'm going to get you to bow before me by force. It's going to be the force of the guilt that I lay on you. It's going to be the force of the argument that I make for you. It's the force of the anger by which I manipulate you. It's going to be the force of the fact that I have all the dollars and you don't, and you need some, and now you have to do what I have to do. It's the force of my position as dad or as mom or as boss or as employer or as board member or whatever. It's the force of my withholding from you that which I know you desperately long for, my approval, my blessing, my love, my affection, to get you to do what I want you to do. Isaiah's like, yeah, now we got something different going on here. It might work to get people to respond in certain ways and perform certain actions. So you gain the action, you lose the heart. Think about God's plan, because he doesn't dispel arrogance by being more arrogant. He doesn't do away with war by being more warlike. He doesn't end oppression by being more oppressive or injustice by being more unjust or unrighteousness by being more unrighteous. Instead of taking us by force, God comes to us as one who is weak and vulnerable and humble. He comes to us as a baby and he captures us with the face of a child for that is his counsel. And frankly, that is 
his might. And that's different. So we're moving toward a question, right? I'm preparing you for the end. Like we're going to get there. There's going to be a quiz at the end. Don't tell you, don't listen, I'm giving you all the answers in advance. Unless the spirit comes along and goes, no, 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 not, not that answer for you. This answer for you. In which case, follow that. That's the right answer. But I mean, if you're looking at this and you're going, okay, so what should my response to, well, King Jesus be in this case? It seems to me that it's bring him my burnt dead stump, ask him to forgive me through faith in Jesus, and then it is, Lord, fill me with your spirit, the same spirit who rests upon Christ. Paul comes and he says, do you not know? He's speaking to Christians that your body is a what? A temple of the Holy Spirit who is where? In you. When? Occasionally? who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. How? By the power of your strength, your intellect, your determination, your ought to, your should do. By the power of the Spirit who lives within you. Paul comes and says, listen, be filled with the Spirit. The idea being continuously filled with the Spirit. He comes and he says, be intoxicated by the Spirit. I'm just going to say it. I mean, intoxication is an event. You go to the bar, you get intoxicated. You know, you shake it off the next day. If you want, you go back and get intoxicated again. There's this idea where we are coming again and again and again and again and again to to gain for ourselves a very different form of intoxication, and that is the intoxication of God, who overtakes us is the idea. Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might. Isaiah tells us as well, that he is the spirit of knowledge. That is to say, he's the one who knows everything about everything and, frankly, about everyone. And then I love this image. He says that he is the spirit of the fear or the reverential awe is the idea of the Lord. And as a result of his presence upon Jesus or upon me or upon you, okay, it says Jesus' delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And the word delight here actually refers to the sense of smell. He's going to deal with the sense of sight and sound in just a second. But first he deals with the sense of smell and he's like, hey, just want you to know something about Jesus. Okay, so here's the deal. The reverential awe of God and of his plans and of his purposes and of his mission and of his ways of who he is, of what he's like, of what he wants to do. Just like it smells so good to Jesus. It's like it's his delight in life. And again, you know, the ancient world was a world that better appreciated sense than we do. Why do I say that? Because it was a world with no toilets, with no plumbing. It didn't have garbage companies and sanitation companies. You know, weren't, weren't street sweepers. I mean, it was none of, you didn't take your trash out to the road, you know, and, and somebody came and picked it up and then you took your can back and your wife's like, you forgot to take the trash out. Now the garbage is going to stink for three days. And I, none of that. It was a world to be plain in which they took buckets of human refuse and threw it into the street or out the window or back in the yard. The whole place smelled like a sewer. They would take their trash, throw it out in the street. Hey, you're done with dinner? Yeah, just scrape it out, just scrape the plate out the window. You know, can you imagine the flies, the smell, the disease? Now hang on for a second. They also didn't take showers and baths and All the hygiene stuff that we're big on, praise Jesus, they didn't have. And they didn't have deodorant and antiperspirant. They had none of that stuff. It's brutal. So think about this. I want you to take 
the smell of an open sewer. And then I want you to mix that up with the added smell of a garbage dump. And then I want you to add on top of that BO that's really bad and that you can't get away from because it's you, you know, like you've had that, right? You've been talking to somebody and you just kind of get this whiff of, and you're like, you know, and, and you're thinking, what's wrong with who? Somebody here didn't, you know, take a shower or something. And then you think, oh no. You know, and real discreet, like you go, oh, you know, like, it's you all the time. It's everyone else. All right, mix that all up and stick your face in that and take a whiff. Because that's the smell of the ancient world. So you can imagine then how delightful it was to smell something good. Very, very different. All right, so here's the deal. We're heading toward a question. What's the question? What should my response to King Jesus be? Now we're looking for answers. I'm trying to help you get an A. How do the plans and purposes of God smell to you? How does God smell to you? And how does he smell to you relative to the smell of all of the things of this world? Because everything in this world, every person, every animal, every living creature is either dead or dying. Everything that we create is either dead or dying. You're like, no, 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 my business is thriving. It's soaring. It's taking off. Yeah, and it's destined to die. It's kind of like a person, you know, they hit their 20s and they're like, I'm in my prime. Yeah, and you're closer to death. It's going to happen. Everything that man creates dies. And death, too, has a smell, doesn't it? Okay, so the church is called Rio Vista, Riverview. We're on a river. I know that a lot of you know that, but if you're online, you might not know that. So we're on a river. And I remember years ago when my office was back in the house there on the river, a dead manatee floated up into the mangroves over there. Oh, guys, it would make your eyes water. Like, it was unbelievable. And I couldn't figure out what it was, but I was, like, wrapping my face and running to the car. It was so disgusting. We had to, finally, we figured it out, <laughs> called the city, and they had to get the carcass of this rotting manatee. Imagine that out of the mangroves and away from them because none of the kids were going to play. Like, it was bad out there. In fact, if you compare the smell of death to open sewer, garbage dump, BO that I can't get away from, and you gave me the choice, I would take the sewer, garbage dump, BO I can't get away from all day long. Lord, Make you and your plans and your purposes and your ways smell to me the way they smell to Jesus and then do the same with everything else. Having dealt with his nose, sense of smell, Isaiah now turns to Jesus' eyes and ears. And it's telling in terms of the kind of leadership and, and kingdom that he's bringing he says that Jesus shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, which if you think about it is all that a human judge really can do. A merely human judge can do what? They can listen to the evidence and they can see the pictures and look at the... Like they have to make decisions based upon what they see and hear. Now, what is the problem? Certainly not with all human judges. Thank the Lord. All the ones I know, people have integrity, and I mean that sincerely. But there's corruption in the system. 
There are judges around the world in Isaiah's day and in ours as well who will blind their eyes and stop up their ears for favors, for campaign donations, because I'm your friend and I'm not their friend. Subverts justice. And who are the most vulnerable to that? It's the poor and the powerless. It's the people who have nothing to offer. I got nothing to give you. I have nothing to offer to you. I I can't do anything to buy your favor. So Isaiah says, let me tell you something about Jesus. With righteousness, he shall judge the poor, and he shall decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And then he says this. He says, Jesus shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Again, ancient world, those people, very vivid image. They understand what this is a reference to. You know, back then, if you were a king and you had a kingdom and you were going to go to war against your enemies, it was not uncommon to take out whatever your version of a Sharpie pen was, and then you would write it on clay pots, all right? Here's the enemy's name on this one and another enemy's name on this one and another enemy's name on this one. Then you would take like an iron rod, and before your people and your army, I mean, this is like a whoo, you know, this is just before the game, and you just smash the heck out of these pots, the idea being, now we're going to go out and do that to the enemies, Who are Jesus' enemies? Because it doesn't sound so good, right? You're going, I don't know who they are, but I don't want to be one. I hope. The people who say to Jesus, you know what? Thank you for life. Thank you for gifts. Thank you for meaning. Thank you for purpose. Actually, you know what? Don't thank you. Just whatever. I'm going to take me, and I'm going to go over here. You're like, no, 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 no. That's me, and I don't want to be an enemy of Jesus. You know, like I just want him to leave me alone. It's not the way that it works. He's made you to be for him. He's made you to find all of your longing satisfied in him. George MacDonald says this. He says the one principle of hell, meaning of everyone who will eventually end up in hell, is this. It is I am my own. There it is. Just right on. And if that's in your heart and if that's what informs the way that you live and all of your decisions and how you relate to people, you will experience hell long before you arrive. That is hell in a marriage. In your relationships with your kids, that's hell. With your parents, hell. With your friends, your siblings, this is terrible. I am my own will wreck you in every possible area of life. And then in the end as well. And yet Jesus takes up the shattering rod of his word And for your good, he shatters your heart by saying, hey, you were made by God and for God. And when you die, you will stand before God and answer and be held accountable to God. He is your judge. His law is the standard. And guys, that's shattering. Like that's that's crushing. Nobody stands before that. But then he takes the same word. It's ironic. And then with it, he heals us by calling us to come to him. By calling us to take the dead, burnt stumps of our lives out of which we and everybody else do not expect anything living to come out of, much less life-giving, and to bring them to him in repentance and in faith. And to say, Lord, forgive me of that by Jesus who suffered and died on the cross. He took the shattering fury of God for all of our rebellion. In our place, in the place of everybody who will claim that, as the means of forgiveness for their sin, the payment of their debt unto God. 
fill me with your spirit and, and let me start smelling the world for, well, the way it smells to Jesus. And let me start smelling you and your plans and purposes, well, the, the way that it smells to Jesus and start bringing some life-giving fruit out of my life through that shattering word in a good way. He collects up all the pieces of our hearts and lives and refashions and reshapes and, and actually brings life from them. It's amazing. He doesn't shatter just to shatter. He shatters to heal. And so then Isaiah closes with this, speaking again of Jesus. He says that righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins, meaning that's the thing at the very center of him that holds everything else together. And then he looks ahead to the world to come. Like this whole thing is going somewhere. And he gathers up all of these inveterate enemies in the animal kingdom. All of these things that by nature fear and run from each other. And he's like, yeah, there's going to be peace even between them. He uses it as a way to go, man, safety and security and peace and safety and security and peace and safety and security and peace. A world in which there's no more threat, care, or concern. He says, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them, and the cow and the bear shall graze. Notice that. The bear is grazing, so he's not eating meat. That's the point. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion won't eat meat either. He'll eat straw like the ox instead of the ox. The nursing child, like as a parent, this is meant to make you go, okay, the nursing child shall put his hand, or I'm sorry, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the wean child shall put his hand on the adder's den. It's like, honey, um, our baby is playing with the cobra again. Is that okay? Oh, yeah, they do this every day at this time. It's good. Security. No threats. Safety. He says, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Why? For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's how the story ends for people who surrender to Jesus, not by force, but willingly. So we've seen the king, the reign of the king, like the way that he reigns, his unique reign. It's just, it's different. We've seen the end result, the kingdom of peace of the king that is coming. And the question is, all right, so then what should my response to King Jesus be? And just to recap, I think the first response is to bring the burnt dead stump of your life to King Jesus and then to surrender it entirely to him and then to expect him by faith to actually bring life out of you. Not, oh, I'm just bringing it to you. Nah, well, I guess we'll see what happens. You know, but no, 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 like life, come on. I want to see a leaf, you know, like a shoot. Like I'd like to bear fruit in the end. Like this is going to be, bring it to him. It's what he does. It's what he's been doing for 2,000 years. I mean, listen to the Apostle Paul in the first century writing to Christians. Church just getting started. Listen to the description. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26, he says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are by the power of God 
Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. But instead that we might all of us collectively boast in the presence of man and the God who brings life out of dead stumps. So I think the first thing is to bring your stump to the Lord and surrender it entirely to him. But the second thing is to ask God to fill you with the Holy Spirit, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, the spirit of knowledge, the spirit of the fear of the Lord, the spirit who causes you to smell the world for what it is, to smell God and and to delight in him for who and what he is, the spirit who gives you the strength of weakness and the power of vulnerability and the might of humility by which to fight for the people in your world by laying your life selflessly down before them. That is to say, in unconventional ways. And then thirdly, I think that, that our response is to engage in Jesus' mission of helping people make peace with God and with each other. And as I talked about last week, you know, I mean, the church is a family. And in the family, you have different people with different roles. And I said last week, look, you know, like we pastor people, like we're here to do what? To equip you guys to go and to do the ministry, to train you guys, to equip you, to give you resources and opportunities and all of these things. And so when Drew gets up and she talks about quiet evening and the men's breakfast, what is that? It's an opportunity for you today to just text somebody and go, hey, listen, we've got this really amazing thing at our church. It's called Quiet Evening. And Julie Brasington is going to speak at it, and she's going to be amazing. Julie Brasington is the little sister that I never had. She's too young to actually technically be my little sister unless my parents are Abraham and Sarah, and they're just somehow miraculously able to conceive beyond the children that they have. But honestly, she has a ton of wisdom, great heart, amazing talent, We have a rule around here, what Julie wants, Julie gets. That's the way it is. I have favorites. But I'm serious. Sam kills it every month at the men's breakfast. Food is great. Guys are awesome. It's a total dude event. Love it. Who are you going to invite? Christmas Eve. Where are your cards? I just take them with me. Have a little stack in my car, keep them in the pocket, go to a restaurant, you know, talk to the server. Hey, I'm going to invite you to our church for Christmas Eve. I don't know, you know, maybe you have a church and you've got somewhere to to celebrate the birth of Jesus. But if you don't, we'd love to have you. Just whatever, you know, it's about that easy. Yard sign, grab one. Like, oh, what are the neighbors going to think? Who cares? I mean, really? They're going to think that you're a person of faith. Is that a bad thing? That's wonderful. Maybe it opens up opportunities for you to have conversations with people. And then, of course, Alpha. Guys, the Christian faith is an active faith. And I think that, too, is a matter of, hey, what, what, what should my response to King Jesus be? Because if you look at your faith and you're like, yeah, it's not active. I just come, I sit, and I leave. And I don't even do that very regularly. Okay, that's all right. That's a moment then that you get to come to King Jesus and go, you know what? This stuff is real and it's important and it's, and it's serious and it's life-giving and it's joy-giving and it's peace-giving for me and others. And I need to re-up. I need to begin to take it seriously. So what should your response, my response to King Jesus be? Okay? Consider that before we come to the table this morning. Let's pray together. Lord, we are grateful that your response to us was not to just kick us to the curb. It was not to destroy the world and remake it with a better people. It was instead to bring glory to yourself through your Son, 
and to display to the heavens and the earth the power of of weakness and vulnerability and humility, of mercy and of grace and of love that overcomes all of our failures. Lord, you and you alone bring life out of death, and we live in a world in which everything is dead or dying, everything and everyone. God, I pray that you would claim the burnt, dead stumps of our hearts, that you would take our lives and that you would bring life-giving fruit from them. Let us have that joy. Fill us with your spirit, Lord, and send us out on your mission. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.